welcome to episode 12 of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And today's guest is Mrs. Brown's Boy star, Rory Cowan. Rory was born in Dublin and started out working for EMI, where he eventually became their marketing manager for Ireland. He subsequently went on to be a publicist for the then little-known comedian Brendan O'Carroll. Years later, when an actor stepped down at the 11th hour in Brendan's new stage show, Rory reluctantly took on the role, and the rest, as they say, is history. That stage show was, of course, Mrs. Brown's Boys, which later became the hugely successful sitcom. It hit our screens in 2012 and instantly became a runaway smash. The show has won a raft of awards, including a National Television Award and a BAFTA, and has also become a really big hit internationally in countries such as Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Rory even made it onto the big screen with the spin-off movie, which topped the box office in both Britain and Ireland. Rory left the show a few years back and has since become an orator for Irish Gogglebox and has won a starring role in the soap opera Fair City. When I met up with Rory a few weeks back to do the interview, we chatted about what it was like to be a young gay man in Dublin in the 70s and 80s pre-decriminalisation, his hilarious coming out to his friend's stories, why it was so hard to make gay relationships work in the past, the discrimination gay couples face because of their lack of legal rights, how his mother reacted when he came out, and lots of other things also. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. Hello Rory, welcome to my podcast and thanks for being here. How are you Not today? Not at all, I'm delighted to be here. Everything is good, I have a slight cold, but um, it's not bad because I get the flu jab so everything is okay, so it's just a slight cold I have. It's kind of standard around this time of year, isn't ah, it? Yeah, it's part of the, the, part, part of the charm of living yeah. in Ireland. <laughs> and how was your Christmas and New Year? Were you in Panto Chris, this year? No, this year I didn't do Panto because I was promoting my book and I was also in Fair City. I looked on those two things as gifts from my mother. My mother died. She had dementia. Mm. She died in November 2018. I never took career advice from her when she was alive. I always rebelled against any advice she gave me. But she mm. gave me this book. And the publishers came to me. They wanted a book, an autobiography, but interwoven with stories about my relationship with her because I'd been promoting awareness for dementia and promoting trying to get awareness for the need for more home care. And then the Fair City storyline was a dementia one. And they offered me that part based on they had seen that I had been caring for my mother and stuff like that. So I just thought, well, these are two gifts from her from the grave. So I'm going to just do them. And I gave up everything else. I've been narrating Gogglebox. I gave that up. I gave up the panto. I've been asked to do Dance with the Stars. And I would have done that. And there was lots of things. I, there was another part I was offered, which was the granddad in Little Miss Sunshine, the musical. Okay. And I turned that down. I've turned it an awful lot just to concentrate on the book yeah. and concentrate on Fair City. I decided these are the important things I wanted to do. You're really in demand, aren't you? I, 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 well, it's, it's great to be like that. I left Mrs. Brown's Boys not knowing what I was. I was planned to take a year off. And then Al Porter pulled out of his panto and yeah. his radio show and his TV show. And the, 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 the theatre was going to be, the Olympia was going to be dark. And I was talking to a very good friend of mine, Caroline Downey, who owns the Olympia and the Gaiety. And 
she was talking about how bad it was for all the casual staff that work when shows are on, like bar staff, front of house staff, uh, backstage people. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of people involved. And then she just said, and she said, and everybody who's working, who would be suitable, has, is already booked. And all the dancers and the actors in the show, they're not going to get other shows because they're all booked already as well. And she just, at the end of the conversation, just said, would you do it? And I just said, yeah. Basically, just to keep the show going and keep people working. It must be a very intense few weeks, though, doing Panto. Oh, it is. It's but it's brilliant. I, it's fantastic, and I loved all the kids in it. I used to cut. There was a song I sang last year, "Spice Bag Your Life." Um, it's to the okay. tune of the Spice Girl, "Spice Up Your Life." So it was "Spice Bag." So, your like life. an Irish interpretation yeah. of "Spice Up Your yeah, Life." Yeah, because okay. my character owned a Chinese restaurant, so oh, we were okay. selling spice bags and everything. So I was saying "Spice Bag Your Life," and then they'd have. So I used to call them "Me Little Spice Bags," and they used to love it and everything. Like I just, I it was a lovely little family. And I just thought it was great. I really, really enjoyed it. Because once you go in there at 12 o'clock in the day or half 11 in the morning, you don't leave until the second show that night because you're covered in makeup. You can't yeah. really go out. Um, <laughs> and you have two shows. So you're there and everyone's in together. So you have to get on. And it was just a great... I loved it. I really did love it. And I've been asked to do pantos in the UK and I might do one next year, I, I, later on this year. It's in huge December. business over know. there, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah. Ireland and England, it's massive. Yeah. And pantos are great because... It's an awful way of saying it, but like it's it's, it's like smoking. The, the attitude yeah. that used to be with smoking, get them young and have them for life. Um, that's why it's like if you get children into a panto, they'll know that a night out in the theatre or a, an afternoon in the theatre is a good experience. So they'll grow up knowing that. I always find that people who have never gone to panto very rarely go to theatres because they don't know anything about it. So they don't think that it's going to be a good night yeah. out. But you get them young, get them going to pantos and you have them you have them for life. That's like in every marketing department of every major yeah. corporation have that approach, don't yeah. they? Try and reel them in when they're yeah. when they're and young. That's it. And kids grow up and they know that they will have and so it becomes like part of the mix. Yeah. They'll say we go to the pub, we go to the cinema, we go to the theatre. And it's not dismissed. But people who don't go to pantos don't know that, don't know how good a theatre thing can be. Yes. A night out in the theatre can be. So you need to start them when they're young. Oh yeah, get them to the pantos. No, but you were you talk lots in your book, which I read um, over Christmas and New Year. It was a brilliant read, by oh, the way. Oh, thanks very much. And great stories, really, really uh, funny anecdotes in it. But you talk a lot about all your different performing, and I've been doing quite a bit of research on you over the last few days. And I think uh -huh. there was one interview I came across, and you were saying that your life has been quite different to a lot of gay people's, especially of your generation, in a way, in that you never really struggled with your sexuality, and that you've no. lived quite a charming. I've had, lucky I've life. had a very charmed life and especially when I went on the gay scene first and we're going back to the 70s I yeah. can remember the day I can remember the date and the reason I can remember the date is because it was at a Slade concert in after Slade concert in the National Stadium it was the 24th of March 1973 I was 13. I wasn't 14 till July. And that's when I went to Bartley. That was when I went to the f my first gay bar. Now, we were only in for a minute when we were thrown out. But I went and a friend of mine brought me. And he turned out to be a good friend. Um, but at the time, at the concert, he didn't. I didn't know him. And he hit me over the head with a chair. And then when he realised who I was. <laughs> there was you Block H in the National Stadium, which was all wooden seats, the wooden oh, chairs. Like um, a plastic fold-up chair. Yeah, but they were okay. wooden ones. <laughs> and all the other seats were fixed. But this was where the boxing ring used to be. So they would put down these chairs yeah. when there was concerts on. 
so when Slade were playing, things went wild. And he... Yeah, by the sounds of it. Hit me over the back of the head with it. And then he, he looked at like me and character. he said... Oh, he is. And he, but he was. And he looked at me and he says, you're from Benildas. That was the school I went to. And I said, yeah. And I'm there trying to block off another whack of a chair. And he says, I got up. He said, if I'd have known it was you, I wouldn't have hit you. He says, I used to go to that school. And that's how we got talking. And he said to me, then we'll go to Bartley Jones. And he brought me. And... I, when I knew I was going to a gay bar, I just always had this impression at the time that gay bars were going to be full of perverts who'd want to molest you, who would be. So we walked in the door and guess what? It was just like any other bar. I'd worked in the Sandyford House as a lounge boy, so I knew what bars were like. And I walked in and it was just like any other bar, except that the barman saw us and threw us straight out because he knew I only looked 13. <laughs> I looked, I might have got away with 14, but I was still too young to be in a bar. Um, so you looked like a, a child at 13. So threw, yeah, yeah, so he threw me out. So Bartley Dunn's, that was the George was of the day. Of the day, that's what it was. And that's where all the theatricals went. And that's where everyone... Now, back then, it wasn't called the gay community. Back then, Bartley Dunn's would have been known as full of queers. And that was... What's now the gay community back then was full of queers. If anyone went into Bartley Dunn's by, by accident, as they would say, I went into this bar, full of queers. And that's what the gay community was known as. So that's changed now, thank God. That's all gone. And Bartley Dunn's, where, where, was that upside? St. Stephen's it's, Green has been knocked down, down. It used to be the old break for the border and there's a hotel there now oh, called okay. the Grafton and they call the bar in it Bartley's. And it's, it's exactly where Bartley Dunn's was. It's Bartley's. That's And it's a beautiful bar. When I was going by, I thought, oh, that's lovely. That's a nice touch. They named it after Bartley's. And I walked in and it's a stunning bar. It's lovely. And what was the rest of the gay scene in Dublin in the 70s and 80s like for a, a man like yourself? The gay, pre scene, the gay scene was wonderful insofar as I made some lovely, wonderful friends. Ken and Robert are friends of mine. I never would have met them if I hadn't been gay. And um, I, if I hadn't been on the gay scene, I never would have met them. And they're still my best friends today. And I really hate to think what my life would have been life with, like without them in it. Because over 36 years now, I've been friends with them. And they're they're just the best friends ever so I made good friends then there's a lot of people that I've made be very good friend, good friends with but at the same time it was an underground thing a lot of people wouldn't go on the scene because back then it was a horrible time really if you were a teacher or if you worked in a hospital or if you worked like most jobs you could be fired if you were gay so as a result a lot of people didn't go on the scene um, a lot of gay people stayed away from it so the scene was very very small when I went on it first, I knew everybody on it, every single person. Now I could go into any of the gay bars and know nobody. And that's brilliant. There's there's a lot more gay bars now than there used to be. I had a great time on it because I was working in a record company, so it didn't really matter to them. But I could understand why other people would have a problem with it. They couldn't be out. We're going back to a time where it was criminalised to have sex with somebody of the same sex as yourself mm. it was two years in prison you could get I know I don't know anyone who ever was mm. charged with it but it was there it was a law until 1993 so in the 70s and the 80s when I was on the scene everything was totally illegal and you know when something is illegal and society is against it that gives permission to people who know somebody that's gay to batter them mm. to beat them up yeah. and there was some dreadful dreadful beatings and murders everything people went because there there was a sort of a if, if something is wrong and something is illegal and something is seen as being disgusting and unnatural 
The natural thing is get rid of it. Close it down. Get Just get rid of it. That has to go. So people felt that they had the right to go and beat the hell out of a gay person if they saw, if they even suspected somebody was gay. And they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. They thought they were doing right. You couldn't go to the police because it was illegal and the police would be saying, well, okay, let's have a look at you. What are you up to? And so there was nobody to complain to. And I remember going to Flickers, which was the Hirschfeld Centre, run by David Norris, actually. Yeah, that was in Temple Bar. In Temple Bar, in the um, mid-80s, the early 80s. And sometimes the police would be outside taking photographs of people. They'd be in cars taking pictures of people going in. Now, they never did anything. They never arrested anyone. They never questioned anyone. They never manhandled anybody. But it was still there. They were taking photographs. So a lot of people then wouldn't go because they thought, we don't want to be on a list. We don't want our pictures taken. They didn't know where this was going to turn, where what was going to happen or what was going to occur afterwards. So there was all this type of intimidation things that went on. And the pubs, if you had closed at 11 o'clock in the, win- in the winter and half 11 in the summer, whatever way it was, there was a half an hour drinking time. So if you, the bar was to be closed at 11, by half 11, everyone would finish up their drinks and be gone. But usually any other bar you were in, it could be 10 to 12, they'd be going out or whatever. Like, But bang on half 11, the police used to run into the bars and they take everybody's name. So people didn't... So they'd run into the gay bars, is yeah, it? Yeah, into the gay bars. They'd just run in and take... And everybody was there. They'd be at all the doors. They'd close the doors, take everyone's name. Nobody was ever charged with being in a place after hours or even though it was only two minutes after closing or nobody the bar was never charged either or anything like that but it was just this type of thing that people didn't want to be on a list yeah. and it was like your, your name is being taken so we we thought I thought it was great fun at the time, but looking back, it wasn't really. And that's not even that long ago, is no, it's it? No, it's not. It's only the seventies and the eighties. And as the minute it was DLG criminalised in nineteen ninety three, mm. everything changed. So it was never personal when the so even now, like the police, and I, I sort of have to force myself. And I think most gay people coming from my generation, they would have a very healthy disregard for the police or disrespect for the police. So I have to sort of force myself now to say, oh no, you have to support the guards. You have to support them. But at the, the, like, and I have to force myself to do that because I know that you should. But at the same time, I'm also going back to the time when I'm thinking I have no respect for what they, for the law, for what it did when I was younger. Yeah, after those experiences like yeah, with so them. So you just think, nah, I've no. So I have to force myself. And I do, I really do support the Gardaí. I really do. But I have to think about it. I have to say, yes, I do. I have to rationalise it in my head. But it was against the law. They were just doing a job. And they were, ne- as I said, they never manhandled anybody. They never made little of us. They never did anything like that. But they just let us know we're watching you and you're, what you're doing is not, is not legal. And were you aware yourself of that anti-gay sentiment or feeling from other people and when you were and out in yes, public? You see, at those times, like when you look now, especially when no gay relationships, like people my age, I'm not in a relationship, haven't been. I have no interest in being. But because I look at it, I'm 60 now. My time for, for having a relationship would have been in my 20s, 30s. Go through a few people until you find Mr. Right and then settle down. Boot camp or training for the real but, thing. Yeah, but that's the, the way everyone does. That's the normal thing. You go out with people and then you find someone you like and you settle down. And that's the way it was. We were brought up, every one of us gay people going back then, the moral compass that we had and everything that we were brought up to believe in was, we're going to grow up, we're going to get married, we're going to have children. And then when we hit 
our teenage years. We, there was no alternative for us. There was, we weren't told there's another lifestyle out yeah, there. Yeah, gay people thing. were invisible to you. They were, they were, yeah, but this was the only, everyone was taught this. You're going to grow up, you're going to get married, you're going to have kids. So when we hit our teenage years, we realised this, this isn't the life for us. But we didn't know what was the life for us. So we were floundering around. So when everyone else was going around meeting people, we didn't know what. Not only were we not meeting people, meeting gay people, most of them didn't know where to meet gay people. They didn't know where the gay bars was. Everything was underground. They all thought they were the only one and they didn't know. They would let themselves open to be blackmailed or be beaten up if they came out and be shunned by the family and not get work. So it was very, very difficult. It was really difficult to find out where your alternative life Yeah, they had no be. blueprint. They had, no, they had, they had nothing, nothing to model it on. Absolutely nothing. It was grow up, get married, have yeah. kids. And that was from the time we were born. That's what we were told. And it, when it, for us, when it didn't happen, it was like, what do we do? Where do we go? I was lucky. But a lot of people, especially down the country, they wouldn't have known where there would have been nowhere for them to go. They wouldn't have known. There was no Internet. There was no way of no grinder. There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing to get help. And you couldn't say anything. As a result, a lot of us, we never had relationships because the relationships, they had to be kept quiet because the family probably would go wild, go mental, that there was somebody gay in the family. So you, if you were in a relationship, nobody knew. It's the most, it's the strangest thing. Your family didn't know. Your friends that weren't on the gay scene didn't know. Your workmates, nobody knew that you were in a relationship. So everything was kept quiet. And his family and friends and workmates wouldn't have known either. Yeah. So if you were in trouble in the relationship, if it was going through a bad patch, there was nobody there to help you through it or to encourage it. Like a straight couple if they are going through a bad patch families on both sides are going to say I know you've got to keep together you try and like and they'll nag you into working it out but I, but you're there like they're they're supporting you to work it out gay people never had that and that's bound to have a huge impact on your mental health kind well, of living in so secrecy all, so, all the time well you look at how could any marriage work how many marriages would to break down if it would would break down if all they had to do was just walk away mm. and nobody was to know any different they all falling apart but we that's what we had and then when we broke up and you'd be upset about breaking up or you'd be heartbroken or whatever it is you had nobody to talk to you had to carry on as if everything was normal and put a smile on your face and get on with your day and not let anybody know the pain you'd be in from a relationship breaking up because nobody knew about the relationship in the first place hmm. I remember and this sounds very weird because it sounds like something from the Victorian age but it wasn't when I was on the scene first when I got a job in EMI I was 24 and I was made the marketing manager of EMI and I was given a company car and I got the car and a few days later a friend rang me and said have you got your car and I said yeah I have he says could you come out um, somewhere over the north side somebody has died an old there was a, a couple that I vaguely knew an old gay couple one of them died so I went out and I thought, well, they're going to need me to go and collect bread or go and collect food or collect something, bring it back for the wake or whatever like that. It was no such thing. What they wanted me to do with the car was, because both families had shunned them years beforehand, mm. um, nobody knew about the relationship except the gay people. The families were having nothing to do with them, but the person who died and the person who was still alive, they bought a lot of things together. They had antiques and they had paintings. They did a lot of things. They built a life together and built a house together and put all the stuff in it. My job was to go out and take all the stuff out, take it before the family realised he was dead because the, the the partner wasn't next to kin. The family who he was estranged from was. Oh, and and no form, legal rights. Once they found out he was dead, they were in like locusts to get their share. 
So that's why I was taking all the stuff out, so as we could give it back to the other guy afterwards when the when everything was sorted out. The house had to be sold. Everything had to be. Everything was changed. So at least he got something else out. And so and, and I felt I found that shocking mm. that a couple that had been together for donkey's years were entitled to nothing. Those and stories it, are heartbreaking. Yeah, and another friend of mine that I grew up with, Derek, Derek and Jonah, both died. But Joe and Derek had been together for 28 years. and But Joe was the one that was the successful businessman. He owned a big house in Rat Mines, a three-story house. He owned everything and he had, bu- he had businesses. When he died, Derek was entitled to nothing. And this was only in the 90s. Derek was entitled to nothing. And he got nothing. And the day before he was due to leave that house to go and move into a small little bedsit somewhere, a house that he shared with his partner for 28 years, mm. Um, he he had to leave, so he took an overdose the night before he was due to leave, and he died. And that's that's only twenty odd years ago, twenty years yeah. ago. It's not that long ago. It's it's a blink of an eye to me. I'm mm. sixty, so I would have been in my forties at this stage, um, my late thirties. But they would so things have changed enormously, and now Ireland, Thankfully, I love Ireland. Yeah. I love it. I think we have a fabulous country now, but it wasn't always like that, but yeah. it is now. And I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. That guy would not, in my time, in the 70s and 80s, he would not have got near that job. Not yeah. even as a cleaner would he have got into the job. He wouldn't have gotten yeah. like, but now, and so Ireland has changed, and it changed gay people, so dramatically. Yeah, but gay people never were never given anything. Gay people in Ireland were never given anything. Mm. They demanded everything they got and they fought for everything they got. Nothing was ever given. Even for decriminalisation, the government had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the European courts because <laughs> they went through all the courts in Ireland and they had to be dragged oh, kicking and Senator screaming. Oh, Senator David Norris. So, um, yeah. David Norris and Mary Robinson. So they had to fight hard for everything they got. And... They kept fighting and it was wonderful. And then it's and that's why we have this society we have now. So I think gay people should be very proud of themselves for what they've achieved. Fella who hit me, Justin, who hit me. Oh, at the concert, the concert, the Slade concert. He's dead is another one. When I was writing the book, I realized that there were seven people that I knew, close friends that I knew that killed themselves. Mm -hmm. People, well, seven people I knew. And he was one of them. But we started off. As great friends, he took me out on the gay scene. And so I had somebody that was... And nobody, all, all my friends growing up, they knew him and they knew me. They never knew the two of us were friends. They never knew any of that. And we lived on the same house and estate, but they never knew we were friends. And But he took me out on the scene and there was somebody else there. So I had a great teenage years. Oh, that's good to hear, isn't it? It was, it was fantastic. And that's what I want to do. I would love to do something in another book because... For people like yourself or even the young kids coming up now, they don't know that gay history. That's not that long ago. Like, we're not talking about going back to Oscar Wilde yeah. or something like that. We're only talking about within living memory. We're talking about... I was alive at the time. 20, 30, yeah. 40 years ago. And I'd love to... Because there's, there's lots of stories I have of the things that happened that you just wouldn't believe. That is a good um, idea for yeah, a book. So you have to, to pitch that to your publishers. So you just collect lots of these stories. Well, I have an of idea for the coming of age story about myself and Justin because we went through an awful lot. And we even took, and I remember, we did everything together. He's hilarious in the book. Oh, he's, he's hilarious. And in the book, you'll see that we took drugs together. Mm. We took acid. Mm. And we went into Stephen's Green and we took the acid. I hated it. He loved it. 
and that was when things changed. He loved the whole experience of it. I hated every second of it. And we were still friends, but he went off the drugway. Okay, he f- fell down then, a slippery uh, slope no, at that did, point. And, it got, and then it got to the stage where he was, he would try to kill himself and he would say, when he didn't die, he would be convinced it was the devil that was keeping him alive. God love him. Mm. It's weird. But then eventually he did kill himself. And even that, suicide was an awful, and it still is, there's an awful stigma to it because when he died, I didn't even know about the funeral. I was away. Um, I was working abroad and I was away. I'd heard he died. But when I heard he'd already been buried, the family didn't. There was no death notice in the paper. There was nothing. It was like, get, get buried quick. Uh, so you didn't so get no any chance to yeah, go to the funeral? nobody did. Very few people did because we didn't know. The fa- like, there was such a stigma there that you couldn't put that in because then the first thing everyone called to the house saying, oh, what happened? And then you yeah. have to say, well, he hung himself. So the family didn't say yeah. anything. They buried him. These things weren't discussed so like openly the in the thing. 80s. And I remember going to visit the grave a few years after he died and I went and I'm looking at it and I'm looking at this tiny little grave and I'm thinking how did he fit in there yeah. he was six foot tall yeah. how did he fit in there it's just a tiny little grave so yeah. and it's it's the weirdest the weirdest thing so I mean a lot of gay people they did die because they did like there was some of them they had horrible lives because yeah. families and stuff I didn't I was so lucky I really was so lucky but some people weren't and speaking of your other friends, you did have feel a bit apprehensive about coming out to some of them. But then in the end, I you came out to them accidentally. So I can you tell me? Accid- ab- accidentally, um, I had been like, I was about 24, 25 at this stage. And I'd been, I've had gay friends and I'd been hanging around gay bars since I was 13 and 14. And I didn't want to, I was a, at the time, even th- thinking about it now, it just seems so surreal. I didn't want to let people know my straight friends know because I thought, well, if they find out they won't be friends with me anymore. And and that was a big deal to me. Like as a teenager, that was a huge deal. Yeah. And I thought, well, I still have to live here. I can't just move away. I'm in my mother's house. I'm still in school. So you're better off saying nothing because no good will come of coming out. And was there any mention of homosexuality from your friends or family during those years? Did you ever hear it discussed when you were growing up? There was nothing really. We it was it was any time it was discussed, it was always done in a way like as I said, it played oh it's full of queers and that was one of but there was never I do remember in school one time there were these two guys and no, they weren't gay at all. Because I'd know who was gay and who wasn't. You've a good gay dar, I had. But at least two, and I know they weren't, but they were very good friends. But the word went round that they were queer. They were battered. And I saw, and I'm looking, I'm going, oh, my closet door has not been opened anytime soon. They've been firmly closed. And nothing happened to the people who did that. Yeah. It was sort of more or less said to the two, like, be careful and don't be. Like giving off that impression, awful, isn't it? <laughs> and it was like it's 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 hilariously in in a, in a sick way. It's hilarious the attitude that was there that time hmm. that these two were somehow at fault for being beaten up for just being friends, just being just being friends. And they were very touchy, huggy people. They were touchy, and they would all like walk around and have a nap and put his hand on somebody's shoulder. Yeah, and the word went, but they weren't gay. A lot of straight men as well are the victim of homophobic yeah, bullying. Yeah, well, they were. They yeah. definitely were, and I knew well, but that kept me sort of in, and it in the would closet, do, and it, it did do, and I just thought so. Then, and I used to go out, and I had a great time, and it was I, for a while. And you're able to when you're young, you're able to balance having 
a lifestyle where nobody knows which is away from the gay scene and have a lifestyle on the gay and have a, a, a separate life on the gay scene and everything like that. But as you get older, it becomes harder and you decide, I don't really want to do this. You want you actually want to be more honest. It's easier mm. when you're younger. You can hide things, you can make excuses, you can rationalise this, that and the other. But as you get older, you start to think, no, hang on, this is this is what I prefer. And I tried going out with girls and I liked going out with girls and then I realised, Rory... Not only are you wasting your time, you're wasting their time. Did you have a long-term girlfriend? I went, yeah, I went out with girls. I yeah. went out with loads of them. And it was just a case of, yeah, this is fine. I'm keeping up appearances. This is grand. And then I, I, I just realised, no, it's not for me. But it's also not only for me. I'm dragging her. I'm leading her. Like, she should be looking for somebody else. And I just realised, don't be going out with girls. Because you know yourself, Rory. You know yourself you're not going to be sexually interested in them really and so did any of your friends you. ask you about whether you were gay or not no they didn't nobody really knew which I thought <laughs> but now I don't I think they should have went to spec savers but they yeah. didn't know then but here you get very good at hiding things when you're young but then I was shared an apartment with a girl a friend a girlfriend of mine no not a girlfriend a girl who was a very good friend yeah. of mine and she still is a very good friend of mine Annette um, Annette Wall was her name Annette Carroll is her name now she's actually married to the guy who owns Carol's gift shops oh, all around cool. the place. you get a good discount there so uh, <laughs> that's who I spent Christmas with them so I've known Annette since she was 12 I was about 14 and we've been best friends ever since so I was shared and that's all it ever was between us anyway just friends and there was never even an attempt for like a snog just to see there was nothing like that there was never anything we were you always friends take a car for a test drive no, we no. were always just good friends and I shared an apartment with her in Milltown a two bedroom apartment she had her bedroom I had mine I don't think I was ever in her bedroom actually <laughs> it was just that was her room and my bedroom was my we, we shared the apartment and we shared the rent and that was it and there was a party there one night and there was a friend of mine, a guy that I had fancied. He wasn't a friend of mine, but I used to bump into him at things. He was a singer in clubs and restaurants and things like that. And I used to bump into him. But he always had girls hanging off his arm. And he came to the party and oh, he was lovely looking. And he said to me, show me around the apartment. And I said, well, OK, this is the lounge. There's the balcony. This is the kitchen. Yeah. It's the bathroom. Then Annette's room is in there and blah, blah, blah. And he says, so where's your room? So I said, it's in here. Now, the party was gone. All my f- straight friends were there there was loads about 50 60 people in the, yeah. in the apartment so I went I thought like dope that I am I thought oh, you probably want to see my record collection or anybody wants to <laughs> look at what clothes I have or something like that in the wardrobe so we went in and he locked the door and then one thing led to another and it was great and uh, somebody so, was knocking on the door saying Rory come out and I said I'll be out in a minute <laughs> and, said, okay. and, the, and then I didn't realise that from the balcony if you leaned over the side of the balcony you could see into my bedroom and I hadn't pulled the curtains and next thing you hear Jesus he's in bed with a fella he's a queer <laughs> now that I thought okay that's not how I planned on coming out but in my own house to be told Jesus he's a queer I just and that was quite a derogatory up. term that then was, and yeah. I thought nah this is about 1984 85 and I just jumped up out of bed you're not having that wrapped a towel around myself ran out and ran in I says right who called me a queer <laughs> and there was all silence and I said right everyone is out get out sling your hook and then this other, this voice came from a friend of mine, John Dawson, who I'd known since we were kids. And he said, Rory. And I said, what do you want? He says, 
Last year, he says, when I was up in your house, he says, your parents were away. He says, I slept in your, I slept with you for two weeks and you never touched me. What's wrong with me? He said, <laughs> and I just burst out laughing. And it was true. We, we had shared a bed, mm. but we were just mates. Nothing happened. And I just, I wasn't going to make a move anyway because I was terrified. So nothing happened, but I thought that was very funny and it broke the ice. And he just said to me, go back into your man, he says, before he gets bored and leaves, um, the party will continue on. And it was grand. And we had a phone like those times it was before mobile phones so we had a phone out on the in the hall right outside my bedroom door and all you could hear was a queue of people online the phone would be picked up near hello <laughs> you'll never believe who's queer and I'd say gay and they say, sorry Rory gay yeah Rory Cowan he's in bed with a fella right now and so I'll tell you about it later and then he'd hang up the phone and somebody else come here till I tell you have you heard the news you'll never and there was this trail of people all night trying to tell everybody this news that's and like instead a scene of out it of... happening yeah. that I thought it would be they would not be friends with me anymore. They were absolutely delighted that they had a gay friend. They thought this was the best news ever. I didn't have one bad experience from any of the people I knew. And even then, the next day, we all went up to the Sandyford house and it was like I thought, oh, so what? I went up and Sean Dawson was there. And again, he stood up and he says, OK. I want to make an announcement to the whole pub. And I go, oh, Christ, Sean, what are you doing? He says, my friend Rory, he's queer. Sorry, Rory, gay. <laughs> Rory, he's gay. Anyone has a problem with that, he says, meet me out in the car park. Yeah. And everyone started clapping. And this is about 1984. So even then, it was like before decriminalisation. Nobody cared. Nobody, ga- nobody cared a damn. I had nothing but wonderful experiences from everybody and a wonderful reaction from all the people I knew. It was brilliant. I love that story. It I was mean, it's so such cool. a great it was coming lovely. out. And I would say that, but it's not how I planned it. I planned on saying it to a few people the way everybody does. But it was, I did, but it was taken away from me. I didn't have the chance to make it my news. Somebody else had said, he's in bed with a fella, he's a queer. And that's how I came out. Yeah. But they didn't mean it in a bad way. It was just like it was a shock to them. It was a shock to them, but they were shocked that they thought this is great news or this is this. It was like something new and something different, and they liked it. It would have been huge news back then in 1984, wouldn't it? Oh, it was massive, and it did spread all around the place. But (laughs) and it made me realise that people don't care. People don't like people. Normal people don't mind what you are. And that's why I knew when we were going for the same-sex marriage, I knew that was going to win because the whole campaign was appealing to the ordinary people of Ireland. If you have a child, you know either you have a child or you know somebody who has a child or you know somebody who has a cousin or a relation that's gay. Give them equal rights. And people just said yes. Yes. Everyone did except for Roscommon. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we won't mention that. We won't mention Roscommon. And it was, uh, so I would say that to anybody who's listening and thinking about coming out, especially if you're young and if you're listening to this, it's, well, it's, it's not going to be as bad as you think it is. When you worry about something, your mind automatically goes to the worst extreme. It's never that bad. It's never going to be that bad. Um, Some people might take you by surprise with their reactions. Yes, they will. And they'd be nice reactions because people... People love something different. And I remember my friends, it was almost like it was kudos to them to have a gay friend. They had a they GBF. this was brilliant. And they were wanting me to take them to gay bars and everything like that. And, and what was them, like that, bringing your straight friends to Well, initially, bars. I didn't, I'd, I'd bring them okay, one or two because I didn't want to sort of, 
at the same time, like, come in and see the exhibits, come in and see the gays. I mm. didn't want it like that. If they really wanted to go, I would say, right, we'll go in for a drink. But it wouldn't be a, a gang, a gang of them going. Um, I might just go for one person, we'd have a drink, and they'd have one drink and say, right, let's go somewhere else. Because I just wanted them to see it was a normal pub. But I didn't want them to sort of come in. I didn't want the other people in the pub to be like, exhibits there to be... Observe like in the zoo, you and go and see the and animals in the gay bar. You go and you bring the you bring the straights in to have a look at the gays. And so yeah. I didn't want that, but there was never an issue when they went in. They'd just have a drink and they'd look around and then they go and they they were sort of you'd see them going, oh jeez, they're just like any old pub. And well, I think they were raging. I don't know what they thought they were going to see, but they didn't see it. They just saw a normal bar with normal people, and that's what gay bars are. And I actually think gay bars have had their day now. I think they're gone because the way things have changed now. People don't need to go to them anymore. It's a shame in a way. It They're is. definitely you disappearing that, in London. But they are. They, of course they are. And they will start to disappear here too. Oh because, no. Well, you see even the George and um, Panty. There's probably more straight people in there than gay people now. But that's brilliant. Because now everyone's just mixing in together. And that's fabulous. So now there's going to be clubs instead of gay clubs or yeah. gay bars. There's going to be pubs and bar and clubs and that's it. And people go and nobody minds. I go... I. The last time I was in the George, I couldn't, I came out and I just sort of, it was like someone stuck a coat hanger in my mouth, the grin on my face was so wide. There were kids coming out, like when I say kids, the 19, 20, yeah. 21, they're kids to me. They were coming out and they were holding hands walking down the street and they didn't see, they weren't making a statement, they weren't doing anything other than being themselves. They weren't saying, look at us, they weren't, they were just shown affection to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, whatever it was. And they were walking down the street holding hands. In my day, if you'd have done that, you'd have been kicked from one end of the road to the other. Because the bar, the bar I used to go to uh, was the Viking. My main, the one, the gay bar I loved was the Viking. It's now Brogan's, right beside oh. the Olympia Theatre. But the Viking, that's what it was. And that was the main gay bar. And, like, if you walked out there into Dame Street holding a fella's hand you'd be battered it was just but unthinkable now, they're doing it now and they yeah. don't see any different and they just see nothing and that's lovely it and is I, I'm just looking at them going We've re this country has really come on a, a long way since yeah. my day There's and been it's fabulous to see and, but those kids don't know anything about the, the, the history of like what yeah. it was like 20, 30, 40 years ago they don't know and it's probably a nice thing but I'd like them to know because they should know that. Yeah, no, it is important they know yeah. about how people have fought for the yeah. privileges that they're enjoying today. Yeah. Let's chat a little bit about you coming out to your parents. So there was a really funny story in the book where you had a bit of an altercation with the police where you were doing prank phone calls and then one of the I think That's there was a right. yeah. there was a police was woman in, yeah. and the your mother jumped out from behind the bushes. Was this at near your house or your mother was waiting? It was near my house on yeah. Sandyford Road. There was a phone box. And again, I'm talking like people have to remember there was no mobile phones. There was phone boxes on the street and you'd have to pay money to make a phone call. But you could lift up, you could tap the phone, which meant that for one, you could dial one, zero and nine. But every other number if it was two. You tap, 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 three, tap, tap, tap on the little buttons at the top of the phone. So you tap out all the other numbers and dial the one zeros and the nine. And you could make a phone call without paying for it. So myself and Justin, we used to ring these people. We used to go through the phone book and just pick out someone with a weird name. 
so one day we were doing this and we found this fella, this fella on the phone book. His name was Cecil Dick. Okay. And we thought this was hilarious. I'm such said, a juvenile sense of humour. No, but that's what we I were. I still think it's we hilarious. We were juveniles. And we <laughs> thought this was hilarious. We're going to have a bit of fun with this. So he said to me, oh, he says, Rory, let me do it. I'd be, I'm much better at accents than you. And he picked up the phone and he tapped out the number. I called the number and he tapped it out and worked for us time. And this woman answered. He says, hi, this is Phyllis. <laughs> Can I speak to Cecil? <laughs> Phil, tell him it's Phyllis. And he was like the one from... <laughs> the, what was the snake from Jungle Book? The way he was doing his S's. Oh, okay. So this was, so <laughs> I want to speak to Cecil. <laughs> and it was just so... But the next thing, these two police came. A band and a policeman. And they were both quite young, but the band was a big woman, country woman. And the only way I can describe her is like... My mother had this expression, like, was um, to describe somebody that was big and just the one shape from the shoulders to the legs. And she used to say, beef to the heels like a Mullingar heifer. And okay. that described what they were like big fat legs and yeah. big fat body. So this one was beef to the heels like a Mullingar heifer. And they came, and I said to Justin, guards, and he just put down the phone, and we practically fell out of the phone box. And they knew what we were doing. And they said, you were tapping the phone. We said, no, no, we were making a phone call. We and were, then your mother pops out. She'd been lying in wait. No, there was a lane. And my mother was going down to the shop. So there was a lane from the estate onto the main road. And she just walked out. Yeah. My mother walked out and she said, what's going on here? And the policewoman said, they were tapping phones. And my mother had no clue what that was. She, she must have thought we were robbing phones or something like that. And I looked at her and I said, we weren't lying through my teeth. I said, we weren't, ma'am. And she said to me, he said he didn't do it. So he didn't do it. And unless you can prove he did, there's no more reason for you to be talking to my son. And she says, come on. And she looked at Justin. Justin, you come on as well. And off we went. And uh, we're going away. And the policewoman wasn't going to let that go. And she just said, your son is very effeminate. And I, my heart is sinking. And I just, looked, my mother just, without thinking, turned around, looked your woman up and down and says, compared to you, I suppose he is. <laughs> well... <laughs> Your mother was incredibly sharp, wasn't oh, she? She was very sharp, but she wasn't going to let anyone attack me. She yeah. wasn't going to do anything like that. Incredibly protective mother. Oh, unbelievable, like a lion. But all, all Irish mothers are. Mm -hmm. They really are. I look at mothers and they'd kill you for whatever you had done, but they would not let anybody else away with attacking you mm -hmm. or saying something. Or they, they wouldn't let a comment go if it was about yeah. her child. It's any, their job any, to castigate yeah. you, not anyone not else. Not anyone else's, yeah. But do you think in that moment your your mother must have had an inkling that, oh, oh maybe he's gay? Knew. She did know. And um, I said it to her years later. I said to her, Ma, you knew, didn't you? And she says, of course I did. And I said, did you never want me to? Uh, and she, she ended, she, she cut the conversation short very quickly. She said, I'm sick of all this here. Um, I have to come out and have to say, I have to have something. So when you say to somebody, when you start a conversation off it, I have to tell you something. That means you're admitting to something that you've done is wrong. You're admitting to doing something wrong. She said to me, you're not doing nothing wrong. You don't have to admit to anything. You don't have to explain yourself to anybody. You don't have to explain yourself to me. I don't need to know anything about this. If you want to talk about a boyfriend or a, a man in your life, that's fine. But you don't have to tell me. But she says, don't you never. And it was it was almost like I get where she's coming from. You don't have to explain yourself. To come out is wonderful. And everyone should do everyone who's gay that they should do it. Or they should like there should be a way of doing it. But you've got to find a way of doing it where you're not on the back foot where you're saying, I have to tell you something as if it's bad news or mm. if it's you've done something wrong. 
be proud about it. Mm. Just say, I'm gay. But don't worry about upsetting anybody because it's if they're upset, it's their issue, not mm. yours. You shouldn't have to explain yourself or have to try and make it easier for somebody else to accept what you are. Don't do it because then the way you're putting yourself on the back foot by thinking, right, I'm the one, I'm wrong here and I have to try and think of them and have whatever way it is. No, your, your mother, she just seems like such a, a great character. She was very enlightened, wasn't she? What she said about coming out, that's kind of similar to what my mum so, says yeah, as well. It's like you don't have to explain yourself to yeah. anybody. And I took that with me and I always think, you know what, and that's why I'm saying don't. Yeah. Explain yourself to anybody. You are what you are and you want it to be equal. You want to be treated as equal. And that's the way it should be. And that's Don't lose sight of the goal. Actually, that leads us on nicely to your other mammy, your, your fictional mammy. Yeah. We'll chat a bit about uh, Mrs. Brown's boys now okay. to finish up. So your character, Rory, played a really prominent role on the show. And of course, your character yeah. is gay as well. So I was trying to think of other primetime characters British sitcoms there the other day with gay characters and I couldn't really think of many so what do you think the oh can you think of a few no have you Brendan O'Carroll was brilliant he um, was ahead of his time the, wasn't he completely ahead of his time up until Rory and Dino gay characters in any show they either had to be a figure of fun mm. they had to be have tragic lives or there had to be something wrong they had to die. They had to. They had to. They didn't just die. They were killed, or they were. They they were always our dirty old men. Yeah. And then there was the the John Inman type, which I loved, and the Larry Grayson. I loved them, but it was never mentioned that they were gay. Hmm. So I, but I like those characters, and I know that today it's probably not. The, 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 a lot of people on the gay community don't like those those characters I loved them I mm. thought they were fabulous but there was no, Brendan O'Carroll was the first one to make gay characters likeable now he did it in 1992 on the, this before decriminalisation but Mrs Brown's Boys started on the radio he introduced Rory and Dino as gay characters as a couple and the family knew they were gay and nobody cared. Wow, Mrs. that's Brown's like in the early boys, 90s. Mrs. Brown, in the 1992, Mrs. Brown didn't understand it, but her attitude was, if Dino makes Rory happy, that's fine with her. But she didn't, she didn't get the gay thing at all. She hadn't a clue. She initially thought, well, then she's good friends with Winnie, so maybe, does that make her and Winnie lesbians because they go to bingo together? Yeah. <laughs> so, she, so she didn't understand it, but if it made her son happy... If Dino made Rory happy, that was fine. The rest of the family didn't have a problem with it and uh, it was never really mentioned. They would talk about Rory, but they wouldn't say my gay brother Rory or Rory, my brother is gay. In the st- there was, this was So Brent, this was before decriminalisation and I think Brendan made, making those characters likeable was a huge thing because I was working with him and we were going around the country when he was doing stand-up and he would introduce the people because it was always the people in the band and me and other people that worked there and he'd say and the fellow down the back selling the merchandise he plays Rory and people had, you get a big round of applause mm. and then when I'd be going around selling the programmes later on or the photographs or the CDs or the tapes whatever it was people had talked to me loads of people all over the country were stopping me and saying I have a brother like that I never said anything about it yeah. so every people had family people yeah, had them absolutely. and they were never talking about it at all yeah. and this is the first time I've mentioned them as being as being gay, yeah. and that was so. Brendan didn't. He was brilliant. He made those characters likable and made them normal. Roy and Dino, they're just a normal couple a normal with normal couple. problems. And that was going back to nineteen ninety two. Tragedy, yeah. and they're not a punchline. And, yeah, and they're completely immersed. They're in, included in the family, just like their straight the relatives. Was. So Brendan did nothing to change the laws here, but he did put like David Norris and uh, Mary Robinson and stuff going to the European courts, changed the law. Yeah. 
But Brendan pushed the envelope. He did make people think. He really think. did. And the and show then when we went and we went and Russia want Russian television wants to buy Mrs. Brown's boys and they said but the condition was that they removed the gay characters and Brendan yeah. said no and he turned down millions and he yeah. said no if you take it you take the gay characters and you don't change anything. In Romania he did the same thing and they took it. Um, but they were saying, well, in Romania, a gay person would be thrown out of the house of Renaissance. I don't care what goes. If you're using this, this is what it is. The BBC didn't want the gay characters to be as prominent when we started off and Brendan insisted no. Mm-hmm. So he was... Even yeah, though I don't I see him anymore that. and I've left the show, I haven't seen Brendan in nearly three years. But it doesn't take away the stuff that he did. He, he, he did make those characters likeable. He did push the envelope. He did make people think. And I just, I think he's fabulous for that. And the show is aired all over the world. Now. All so over it's the in world Canada, it's in Australia. Everyone loves those characters. Mm. And even though I, and I played the stereotype and I used to get some stick for that, but I deliberately did it because there was, the, there was a few Rory's before me on the stage. I only filled in when an actor left and I ended up doing it for years. But... The other actors that played it, they did their own thing and it would be only when it was mentioned in the script and you'd hear the audience going, oh God, he's gay, are you queer? And and they didn't know. Okay. And I thought, well, when they asked me to do it, I thought, the minute I walk on that stage, they're going to know there's a gay character. So I bleached my hair blonde, I wore bright clothes, I really went for the stereotype and I bounded out onto that stage Mm. and from the very first day, I got a huge cheer when I did it because I wanted them to know from the get-go this is a gay character. It's not going to come as a surprise halfway through the show. The minute I walk on the stage, they're going to right. know. And so I that's what worked for the show and for and the that's story. That's what worked for the show, and it worked for and it worked for every and and everyone loved that those characters, Rory and Dino, mm. and I'm very proud of that. And I wouldn't sort of hear anything said against them because they were very. They were to me. They were an important characters, and I'm just very proud to have been one of them. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying to think of some other BBC sitcoms where they have such a prominent gay they character. Don't. And I was I think the character in Gavin and Stacey only p- pops in and out from time to time in one or two episodes. He lives abroad. He I'm does. Tra- and it's like a nephew of uh, I don't know what it is. Um, I, I'm not I can't even remember what the storyline is there, but it's like something happened, but it shouldn't have happened. But they were both. I don't know. It was like it's ongoing, it's, uh, <laughs> and it was, uh, and that's yeah. So uh, everything's like in the shadows, or it's it's, it's not barely mentioned, and it's nothing. Or, uh, it's it's a weird one, but, but Brendan made them prominent. Yeah, and this is what they are, and, and that's that, what but I. But it like. also leaves an awful lot for comedy as well. Yeah, because you come in and you get Mrs. Brown's thing, yeah. Mrs. The expressions that Mrs. Brown can do. And that was part of the thing as well. When Rory and Tina, like when Rory came in, it just allowed Mrs. Brown to go wilder than she normally would. Because mm. Rory was bringing in the gay drama, the, the camp drama that you will, which, and again, a lot of people on the gay scene don't like to see on television. But if you go into any gay bar, there's always camp ones mm. there. And there's drama following them. And it's hilarious to watch. Mm. It's very funny. Yeah. Screaming. I love watching the screaming queens coming in because just even getting there on the bus, there's a story that they have okay, to tell. Yeah. You won't believe what happened yeah. to me on the way here. Yeah. And I love those. I love those characters. No, so. but I really like that about Mrs. Brown's Boy. I think it's got a really positive, inclusive message about it. Yeah. And, I, you know, I always thought that, you know, the show's had a real positive impact. Has it? And well, it's, it's had all a around huge, the world. especially the part where it wasn't a big deal to the family. They just accept all the family accepted it. But the whole dysfunctional lot it never bothered any of them hmm. that one of them was gay yeah i just thought that was fabulous 
where you would think that there would, if it was any other show, it would be somebody in the family would be against them. There would always be a target or an enemy in the family of against the lifestyle. But that never happened in Mrs. Brown's boys. It was just like any family. If there's somebody gay in it, if the first the family, so what? It was real. It was, it was real. That that was real. Rory, it's been a pleasure meeting you and interviewing you today. And best of luck with your book and all your future projects. Thank you very much indeed. I've really enjoyed that. I can't remember what I said. I just chatted away, but it was just... Oh, good, good to hear. It was lovely. Did you get to say everything you wanted to say, by the way? Oh, I think I did. I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. Anything you want to add in? No, no, no. no, You sure? As it is, that was perfect. I can't think of anything else. Great. Rory, thank you so much. Thank you.